Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, I am technically off this week, but I couldn't stay away from Powerhouse Politics. I escaped with my family down to North Carolina to try to get some, you know, to get away from it all. We got hit with a hurricane. Power's out. House is rocking back and forth. I mean, you know, anyway, what, 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 what is it with 2020? Life isn't fair. This year isn't fair in, in every way. But hey, look, the storms <laughs> are still hitting here in, in Washington. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a rollicking political time, too. All right, well, good. So, look, we have a, we have a good show today. Uh, we, we're going to be talking to somebody who knows the vice presidential search process probably as well as any human being alive, with the possible exception of former senator and governor Evan Bayh, who was on the shortlist three times. We'll be talking to Tim Kaine, who has been on the shortlist twice. But unlike Bai, he's actually been chosen one of those two times. So maybe, maybe he does know it better than anybody. Yeah, and it's, an, and it's an interesting process that's closing in. I, you know, we're still, I know the vice president had said it would be the first week in August. It's not going to be the first week in August. We're looking at next week. We're about a week and a half away from the conventions. It will be before the convention, uh, but maybe not much before that. Uh, so we are, we're entering the hot zone for the Veep Stakes. And we've had an extraordinary uh, series of presidential interviews over these past couple of weeks, uh, beginning with the Chris Wallace interview, of course. Uh, then we had that wonderful interview that aired on the Sean Hannity program. Uh, let me see if I have it right. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Remember with the doctor there in the colonnade and the president talking about his uh, cognitive test. And now, in uh, part three of these <laughs> extraordinary interviews, we have an interview with our friend Jonathan Swan at Axios. Um, well, why don't we just do a couple of clips from this interview because it really is. And, 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 and caveat here, uh, we're, we're, we are coming to you, obviously, on the Powerhouse Politics podcast. The visuals, uh, unfortunately, we cannot bring to you. But uh, the facial expressions provided by Jonathan Swan and, in fact, by the president uh, add another layer of, uh, of, of amazingness to this interview. But, 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 but let's start with one very serious uh, uh, exchange. This is uh, Jonathan talking to the president, asking him um, about uh, the, the, the state of the pandemic. And here's the president's assessment. I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. It is what it is. It is indeed. It, it is indeed. I, I, look, I, I think this plays out throughout this interview and throughout the, the president's last couple of weeks. He is so desperate still to a get credit for steps that have taken been taken and b uh, cheerlead and and move past it. That even even as his own health professionals, even as the, the the stark realities of the statistics settle in, even as he professes to be taking it more seriously, uh, th there's something in his gut instinct that brings him back to this is not a big deal, and, and, and that, that the United States somehow is winning a competition. And I'll tell you, for his political team and for people around him, this is not a trait of the president that they like, because it, it is holding the president back, in their view, from coming out on the other side of this politically, the fact that he still cannot, uh, will not acknowledge the severity. I come back to the analogy of, uh, of Churchill uh, during the Blitz. I mean, could, could Churchill have come out every day and said, look, those bombs aren't going to hurt anything? I mean, you know. Um, it, 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 if Churchill had just done a little cheerleading instead of 
you know, talking about uh, 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 blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I mean, what, what? I mean, part of leadership is acknowledging when you have a major, you're confronting a major problem and not pretending that it's less than it is. I mean, one of the other extraordinary parts of this interview was the way the president was trying to present figures, cherry-pick figures, uh, to minimize the problem, including the question of, of how you measure deaths. Listen to this. The, the figure I look at is death. And death is going up now. Okay, no, and it's no. a thousand a day. If you look at death... Yeah, it's going up look, again. Let's look. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd okay? love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death... Yeah. Per, Started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? lower than what is that? Europe. Take in what? Look. In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, first of all, the, the, maybe this is better without the visuals because you hear the you hear the <laughs> rustling of the paper and you hear the president, you know, going through to try to find the chart that's going to show uh, that, that that things are great. So let's let's be clear what he's doing here. He is. After having said that the only reason why we have so many cases is because we do more testing than everybody, okay? So now he's doing something reverse. He's, he's saying that as a percentage of those that test positive, our death rate is, is lower. Um, which means he's, he, in that case, he wants the elevated uh, you know, number of tests so that the death rate looks less bad as a percentage of that. But as Jonathan Swan rightly points out, the question is how many people are dying, and you know what, what, what's the per capita death rate? And there, you know, United States is 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 right near the top. But um, I mean, what a what a crazy exchange! And it it is, as you point out, a cell phone because the the very statistics that he's citing uh, prove the opposite point. Because the 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 point about about it seems like an obvious point, but looking at it as a as a as a portion of the population is you're actually judging how widespread it is. You're not you're not judging the efficacy of the healthcare system in in, in treating people that have COVID nineteen. You're looking at the overall incidence that end end in mortality. And in that, there's just no way to look at the numbers and say that the United States is doing better than other parts of the developed world. It just doesn't it just doesn't happen that way. And in fact, his own health officials will acknowledge that. I mean, this is a week where we saw even even Deborah Burks come out and say. Uh, the, the the virus is effectively everywhere, um, and and this piece of it, you know, we talked on this podcast and elsewhere, John, a couple weeks ago, how the president was taking it seriously. Um, I would say his campaign apparatus is is now taking it even more seriously than the president himself would seem to be. Uh, he is trying to still wish this away, and if you want to know why Joe Biden hasn't shown his you know running mate yet. It's interviews like this, because in the view of Democrats, in the view of Joe Biden and, the, and his campaign, the president is continuing to do himself damage when he puts himself out and, and engages in conversations and exchanges like this one uh, with Jonathan Swan. And the president's doing his uh, regular briefings as well. These are different than the coronavirus briefings of, of March and April. It's the president alone. They are shorter, uh, but he is taking questions, uh, fewer questions. Uh, but he... he, he 
he, he's constantly punctuating these briefings with discussions of other issues uh, beyond beyond the pandemic. And of course, one of the the issues that, uh, that that he's been raising both through these briefings and through his Twitter feed and and actually in in, in these interviews as well is the you know the fears of of mail-in voting and and election fraud. And it almost sounds to me, to my ear, that the president is conceding defeat uh, when he comes out and he says this is going to be the most rigged, corrupt election in history. Because if you're winning and if you're going to win, you're not going to call it rigged and corrupt. Uh, as, as you know, one of my rules, which is, is, is like a 90% rule, uh, in just about every campaign I've ever covered, the first candidate to complain about irregularities on election day is the candidate that's going to lose. Because when you're winning, you don't complain about irregularities. Well, the president's been complaining about irregularities, you know, four or five months out. And now those complaints are getting louder and louder. But this week, he goes out and he does his, his briefing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been pointed out that, uh, that, that the state of Florida you know, does, does a heck of a lot of, uh, of effectively vote by mail, absentee voting. Um, so listen to what he said about Florida voting. Now, Florida's a state, by the way, Rick, I think you'll agree as the political director, a state that the president won in 2016 and must win in 2020. It's also his home state, but yes, <laughs> yes. Also, also happens to be his home state. He's got to win. You're 100% right. Okay, so listen to what he said. So Florida's got a great Republican governor, and it had a great Republican governor. It's got... Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, two great governors. And over a long period of time, they've been able to get the absentee ballots done extremely professionally. Florida is different from other states. Florida has been working on this for years, and they have a very good system of mail-in, and that would be absentee or even beyond absentee. So in the case of Florida, there aren't too many people that would qualify. They're so well-run. Florida's a very well-run state. Low taxes, low everything. They've done a great job, really a great job. And the two governors, between the both of them, they've really got a great system of absentee ballots and uh, even the even in the case of mail-in ballots. So, uh, by the way, what, can, can you help me out? Cause you're, I know you're, you're the political expert on this, on this podcast, uh, Rick. Uh, what does uh, absentee or even beyond absentee, what, 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 what is that category, even beyond absentee? Uh, that qualifies as a new one. Uh, you know, okay. there's been there's been a lot of mixed messaging from this president. He has contradicted himself. He now believes that, that voting in Florida and apparently Florida alone is quote safe and secure. Um, they, you know, they do oh, have. But can more... I stop you? Can I stop yeah. you for a second? Yes. Just a quick question. So has Florida been doing absentee balloting, uh, absentee voting, much more than uh, and for a longer period of time than other states? Not substantially. They they do have they're they're on the more um, you know, the more forward leaning side of the states in terms of absentee voting as well as in person early voting. They've been leaning in on both of those things. But there are states that already do entirely vote by mail, um, and um, a number of states out west, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Washington. Oregon. They, they, they've been doing it. You know. Entirely, you know, the president at the same time, you know, he, he, he threatened and actually he's coming through his campaign's coming through with a lawsuit against uh, Nevada for sending ballots to all people that that actually is, you know, further in, in further even than, than most states do to, to not send not just an application, but an actual ballot. Uh, but the president's, you know, shifting words on this. I've talked to Republican campaigns that have they, they're, they're afraid it's having an impact. They're afraid that his talking about the insecurities and unreliabilities of absentee voting and mail-in voting means that 
less Republicans are doing it, and they're worried they're losing ground. And I think in the category of conceding that um, that he's losing an argument, I think him shifting on uh, and specifically saying in Florida it's fine is an acknowledgement that without a robust mail-in program, you're not going to win Florida. And he's been told that directly. And um, and I think that you, we may see in other states, he'll, he'll have to concede something because the campaign is operating in a different sphere uh, than the president is. The president continues to rail against uh, things that, that actual people that have run campaigns uh, don't believe to be the case or believe just be dangerous messaging. Well, <laughs> It's uh, it's something. So the but so I, but I guess the, the other corollary here is if you've got a great Republican governor and a great Republican former governor, you're going to be in good shape. I mean, that's, that's he says the the quiet part gets said out loud. <laughs> We've said it before. It's, every once in a while, you get a real flash of honesty from the president. Is that you know this, I read this as Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis have told him, hey, you're hurting in Florida when you do it. We got it covered. So that's why the tweet, and that's why he's fine with it happening in his adopted home state. And, and Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Florida, as in some, some other presidential elections, proven to be rather pivotal, um, I, I seem to recall. I actually remember, uh, I remember an election, I don't know, right around the, right around the, the turn of the millennium that was, um, uh, that was pretty critical down there. But this time around, Florida, Florida counts pretty early. So if, if, Trump loses Florida, this, this could be the game on election night. I, you know, the, the, I think it, it definitely goes down as a pivotal state. And, and it's beyond, we look a lot of it in, in this game, as you know, in our race ratings and 538 does this, a tipping point states. You know, Florida actually isn't likely to be the tipping point state. But in terms of being a, you know, a bellwether or a critical state, it's definitely that. If, 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 if Donald Trump does not win Florida, he cannot functionally win the presidency. And that, I think, changes the tone and the tenor of election night. Um, but we know that they do close. And uh, we know there are a lot of states that could be doing close. And uh, the president has been actively trying to undermine trust in the vote and trust in the voting processes. And that's the, that's the sort of nightmare scenario around you know, having election night without firm results. That's where we could, we could land into you know, Florida times five or six if there are a lot of, a, a lot of states that are, that are still out. But look, if, there, if it, is a, it is a blowout of election, then it will become obvious you know, on the earlier side of the night on election night, even if that doesn't get you necessarily to the, the magic 270. All right, Rick, let's take a quick break. We will come back with Senator Tim Kaine of the state of Virginia. All right, joining us now, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Senator Kaine, thank you for joining us. Very glad to be with you guys. Thanks so much. So we were uh, eager to talk to you. We figured that, that probably no better person in America to talk about uh, talk to right now about what is going on with Joe Biden and his search for a vice president, given that... <laughs> You've been through this process a couple of times, but before we get to that, I, I wanted to, uh, to to get your your sense on. Uh, but before we get to that, the the, the economic recovery package here, uh, which which we you know ended the week, people uh, lost the extension of unemployment benefits. Uh, there's obviously a lot of hurt out there in the country, and uh, and we've been at a deadlock. But I am seeing today. Uh, some signs of progress. Uh, Senator Schumer saying progress has been made. Senator McConnell saying some progress has made. So I know you, you, you've been in, in, intimately involved in all yeah. this. Where are we? Um, there is progress being made. And I, this is a hardship package. I, I don't think we're yet sort of economic recovery or stimulus. This is a hardship package. I mean, the, the, 
economic contraction is historic and the death toll is historic and so many people are hurting and we have to help them in this time. And you're right that just in the last maybe 36 hours, there seems like some of the you know icebergs are melting or parting and, and we're making progress. Um, and I think there's a strong desire between uh, Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer in the White House to get to a deal that everybody can sort of shake hands on by the end of the week. It'll take a while to then, you know, a couple of days to put the deal down on paper, and then there will be a process to get it through the House and Senate to the president. But if we can get a deal that people know will happen and shake hands on, that should provide some, some comfort to people who are really hurting right now. And, and, and I, I know there are a lot of serious issues separating that have been separating uh, uh, you guys from from the Republicans. You know, one, one of the issues that everybody understands is this: the unemployment, uh, the, the extra unemployment benefit had been six hundred dollars. Republicans are saying that, that that that's a disincentive to work. They want to go to two hundred dollars. And we were saying, gosh, I remember in the old days, maybe what we would do is say six hundred, two hundred. Why don't we extend it to four hundred? People get some money. Uh, the uh, you know you, you can move on. Is is that the kind of stuff you guys are talking about, or where 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 what are the key points right now? Yeah, those those are all on the table. And I will say that um, this is a negotiation where the points are not separate and apart from each other. So, on something like the UI benefit, um, people are grappling with eviction, you know, likelihood or or foreclosure likelihood, and they're hungry. So the more that you do um, to help people pay the rent and pay the mortgage or be able to get food, then you know you, we need to apply dollars to the problems, but you can put them into different categories as long as they're targeted to people who are hard hit. So you know you could you could do six hundred dollars for UI, and it wouldn't be enough if you weren't helping people with you know their mortgages and and they're going hungry, uh, or you could do four hundred, and it would be fine if you were additionally providing assistance to people who are facing these other challenges. It is a time of dramatic hardship and we just have to make sure that the dollars that are being invested are are going in a targeted way to the folks who really are suffering those hardships in, in the greatest way. Uh, Senator, I want to talk about the the vice presidential search. As, as, as John mentioned, you've got some experience uh, in, in this. You, you've been the bridesmaid yep. uh, for, for, for Barack Obama, and then you were the bride for, for Hillary Clinton just, just four years ago. What, what, is this, what is this period like for the people that are on the shortlist? At this stage, you would, have, you would have put in all your documentation. You would have done a bunch of preliminary conversations, may or may not have talked to the, the candidate, uh, him or herself. But what, what is this like from your perspective? Are you just sitting by the phone uh, waiting for the for the, the the call what is it what is it like the, the nice thing is you know that i think most of the folks being considered or have pretty active you know day jobs and things that they're deeply involved in that keep you busy and i was the same way both in eight and 16 i was governor and i was senator so i had plenty to do that it's it's a challenging time for this reason um and there is just no escaping this it couldn't be otherwise basically if you're on a short list and being considered the campaign kind of needs to know, well, if anybody's going to say anything bad about this person, speak now or forever, hold your peace. You know, they, they, you're out on a diving board kind of by yourself. And if anybody has an error, they're going to fire at you. The, the campaign kind of wants to see it fired. They want to know what's out there and they want to know how you respond. They want to know, do voters think this is a serious issue or is that, oh, that's so minor, who cares about that? So, you know, a, a part of the vetting process that's the most uncomfortable is this public phase at the very end where 
basically anybody who wants to say anything bad about you kind of has a free reign to do it. And the campaign is assessing, is that bad? Do voters think it's bad? Do they got a good response? And they have to sort of factor all that in because you want any of those arrows fired before you name somebody rather than after. You sort of want to know with everybody, there's pluses and minuses, upsides and downsides. Let's make sure we understand all the downsides that everybody has because everybody has them. Let's make sure we understand them all before we make a pick. And that if you're in the position of being vetted, it is uh, it's nerve wracking. And Senator, you know intimately a bunch of these contenders. I've been struck by one vein through a lot of the coverage, which has been the question of personal ambitions. Is is uh, person X too ambitious on her own? Would she have her own agenda as vice president? Uh, is that a question that ever got posed to you directly, either by Obama or the Obama team or Hillary Clinton or, or her team about how, how, how loyal you would be and what your own ambitions would be? Um, absolutely not. I mean, you, you want a VP that can work as a, as a good teammate. So the teammate issue, can you be part of a team? That's really important. But I think the ambition theme that's popped up in recent weeks is just a sad part of what I saw with Hillary running for president in 2016. We have a double standard for women. I mean, that the, the hardest part of being on the ticket with Hillary in 2016 was just the endless display of outright misogyny or subtle double standard that demonstrated to me absolutely clearly why we haven't had a woman president and why the United States it has still such a poor track record of electing women to to national legislative office. If you look at the US compared to other nations, we're not at the global average. We're below nations like Iraq and Afghanistan. We do a very poor job at electing women to, to national office, Congress or the presidency. And, and it's because of the double standards that we apply to women. And so since the vice president has said, I, I wanna have a woman running mate, obviously these are all women nominees or potential candidates that he's considering. And I think this, ambition question that gets raised is just the latest example of a an unfair double standard that gets applied to women. You, you made a good point, which is that this is the point where you've got the, you know, the, the short list is out there. Uh, the, the, the negative, you know, whatever is negative about each one of these potential running mates uh, is, is, is talked about, they're asked about, they're engaged, how did you deal with it? Uh, I've been struck with, uh, with with Karen Bass, who who went out and you know just before in the, in the you know basically the uh, the 24 48 hours before you see uh, stories popping about her uh, saying nice things about uh, the Scientology, the Church of Scientology, uh, praising uh, Fidel Castro, and it almost seemed, you know, orchestrated. <laughs> do, do, what what happens in, in situations like this? Like if you're a candidate. Do you put some of this stuff out proactively yourself uh, because you need to get it out there and demonstrate that you can deal with it and it's and it's no big deal? Uh, does the uh, are are your are your potential you know other contenders for for running mate putting it out in a way to try to tank you? What 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 is going on? How do those stories uh, uh, get out there? Is it all just enterprising uh, reporting by by people like Rick and I, or or is there some you know strategic leaking going on? With that, without you know, knowing in the particular instance with these candidates in 2020, I will basically say negatives come out from every different direction. They come out from enterprising reporters. They come out from um, uh, sometimes the candidates themselves want them out there. So it's not a surprise later. They definitely come out from rivals. Um, 
you know, some, some, and sometimes the, the campaign itself, even the Biden campaign, again, I'm not, I don't know that that's happened in this case, but even the campaign itself, you know, we, we look at candidates, we see everybody's got ups and downs. I wonder how the public might view this particular negative. So they, they come out from every direction and you do kind of feel if you are being vetted a little bit unprotected, but it's necessary. You, you know, I, I, in 2016, 2008, going through it, but 2016, 2008, I was sort of a long shot candidate and that's the way I got treated. In 2016, I was more thought to be, oh, he could be the one that Hillary will pick. It's, it's kind of a, a lonely time because, you know, anybody's going to say negative stuff might be true, might be untrue. People who don't want you to be on the ticket, they might make stuff up. However, it's necessary. So you're, you're, you're sort of aware that it has to happen because you do not want the worst thing for a VP nominee would be to get on and then immediately find that there's a surprise that affects the ticket. Um, you're, you're getting on to help the ticket win. You're not getting on to surprise the ticket. So even though it's tough, uh, you sort of have to accept the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you know, right at, right at the end and just take the incoming. One big difference I've noticed about this about this Veep Stakes period compared to previous ones that I've covered has been how public it's been. Usually, there's kind of a Fight Club rule that you know the first rule of Fight Club: there is no Fight Club, there is no Veep Stakes. I you know I love my job. I'm not thinking. I'm not pursuing all. You know how all the dodges, Senator. You've probably engaged in a bunch of them yourself. But th this time around, we've had. Uh, so many of the candidates say, this is why I'm good. I can do X, Y, Z. This is why I'd be a compliment to the ticket. They're doing media interviews. They're, they're participating in fundraisers. Uh, maybe it's because of COVID, maybe, which has you know, obviously changed the, the, the normal uh, audition process. Uh, maybe it's because of the double standard you talked about. But what are your thoughts on that? This is, I, I don't recall this being a part of previous Veep stakes, the kind of public audition process like this. I think that you're right. And I sort of attribute it to the COVID reality you know, it has changed the way campaigning happens. We can't do the door to door. We can't do the rallies. We can't. There's so much that would normally be done that we're not doing right now. And so it's it's valuable for a, a presidential nominee. Well, um, we need to do a lot of campaign events by, you know, by kind of surrogate and on press and on Zoom events. And um, I can get a real feeling for how different people hold up to that and the kind of impression they make and what people think about them. So. I think the, uh, it, there has been sort of a public nature of this that I think is explained by the COVID reality, but it may now become the new norm. You know, four years from now, thank, you know, God willing, we're past COVID, that it may kind of be a new norm to put people through a very public tryout for some extended period of time to see how they, they stand up to that. All right, Senator Kane, thank you for taking time to talk to us and giving us uh, your unique insight into the vice presidential uh, search process. We really appreciate it. You bet. Glad to be with you guys. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Rick, the thing that I uh, thought was especially interesting there was uh, his assessment of how these negatives uh, come out. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the, one, the one line that, that stuck out to me was he said, the rivals definitely do it. <laughs> So you have Oppo Trump, you know, and the campaign, and and you are yeah. truly unprotected. But you can imagine. So again, I don't know the Karen Bass thing, uh, but 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 those two, those two bits of uh, of 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 Oppo, one probably more well known than the other. The uh, you know what she said about uh, Fidel Castro and and her trips to Cuba in the seventies. Um, but the, um, the, the, the other, the, the, you know, the Scientology appearance, I would imagine 
that during the course of the vetting, uh, she clearly would have had to, you know, would, would, would have presented those uh, to, um, to the Biden campaign herself, I would think, unless she... Or it gets uh, found. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they, they, they do... They do a, a deep dive on, on records, on speeches. And when a story like that breaks, I mean, you always have to think, well, you know, who's, whose incentive is it? Usually when bad things come out about a Democrat, you can, you can trace it back to a Republican. But if you're being strategic about this as, as a Republican, you actually would want something like that to come out after someone is the nominee. Uh, what, a, what a hit job that would have been if the and Scientology the way, speech wasn't known until after she was chosen. You know, and when Kane went through his litany of where the negative stuff comes from, he didn't mention Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he said, yep. he said, investigative reporters, uh, maybe you do it yourself. Your rivals certainly do it. The campaign does it. Uh, there was, there was no, no mention of Republicans. So that's kind of a fascinating little, little detail. You could see, you know, a, a, a campaign leaking negative stuff about somebody they're considering, uh, for the top job. I mean, it makes sense actually. It, better that it's out there now than get yeah. it out there now. Yeah, better that it's out there and, now. And, there's and, no, there's no question. And, and, and it's like it's like a it's like a form of a trial balloon, you know. Um, yeah, that's right. And and just just the comment on it, what a weird process it remains, and it's weirder during COVID. But you, you sit there, and these are all ambitious politicians. They all have been running for office for some time. The women on the short list have all been around this for a long time. But there's no way to experience something just like this because you put yourself forward, you put yourself out there. Everyone's asking the question. You don't want to really comment much on it. Um, you're being tested and prodded. You're having people fire at you from different directions. And it all comes down to a phone call that you get from the, the decision of one person. And if that happens, your life changes definitely for the next couple of months and maybe for the rest of your life. Uh, it's just a just a such a just an odd thing in politics that this still exists that uh, that we have this thing called the veep stakes and 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 a candidate just chooses his or her running mate and uh, that's the ticket and 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 you made a great point which is this is the first time that at least I mean I agree I've never seen it before uh, where you have the the the, potent, the potential running mates actually lobbying for the job on national television. It started with Stacey Abrams, who you know seems to have, have moved off the list. But Stacey Abrams was the first who, when asked about it, said, "Yeah, I'd be a you know basically I'd be a damn good uh, you know uh, running mate, and and and, and he should, you know basically here I am, pick me." But then we've we've seen the other Susan Rice has been very direct about this. They've they've you know, most of them have actually answered the question, you know, why would you be a, a good running mate? Whereas in previous cycles, we've had the annoying and let's face it, dishonest, oh, you know, I'm just concentrating on my job. I, you know, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage on that. Uh, you know, uh, the, the candidate will, will, will choose a great running mate. So I, I think it's refreshing. I like it. I like it a lot. It's like, yeah. yeah and, and, yeah. and I do think, uh, to, the, to the other point that Senator Kane made about um, ambition, I think there is a degree of, of sexism or response to sexism that surrounds all of this. That, you know, I've heard this from a couple of, uh, a couple of the women on the list, even, or people around them, that these are women that got to where they were because they were ambitious and because they put themselves out there. And they don't want the perception. Because it's not true that they're that they're you know looking at the floor and looking at their feet and you know thinking about something else when they think they'd be good at this. They are used to having to put themselves out there, and they may be more used to having to lobby for themselves personally than a male candidate would be. And Biden made a you know big historic announcement at the beginning of this process, way back in March or April, as the primaries were ending, that he would pick 
a female running mate. So that only you know, took out half the population. Um, but for the women that, that have gotten the most scrutiny, I think they've felt a, a necessity to talk themselves up. And I agree, good for them. Be honest about it. That's um, let them let them talk themselves up because uh, in many cases, other people won't do it for you. Lean in, you might say. Lean in. All right, Rick, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. I will be back in Washington next week. Uh, we will be uh, we'll be a week closer to knowing Biden's running mate, and God only knows what else. Uh, thank you uh, to our entire Powerhouse Politics team, Avery Miller, Trevor Hastings, and even Rick Klein. We'll see you next week.